everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Third Person Podcast. My name is Chris Milhouse, joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Daryl Hammond. How are you, Daryl? I'm okay. I'm out here in Hollywood and running around out there at night with comedy types. And uh, I hear good things. I hear hear good things (laughs) about this podcast. and uh, Living the life. Oh, nice. And we have like a really cool guest coming up next week, too, but um, you'll plug that at the end. Yeah, sure, sure. We'll plug it in the end. Uh, and as always, we're also joined by uh, Mr. Jim Search, our producer. Jim? The funniest, oh, hey. the most naturally funny member of the group. Oh, I agree. I 100% agree. Listen, I've never felt more alive, Daryl. I-, <laughs> I, I haven't either. <laughs> I have never felt more alive. I'm living in a simulacra. That's like a fake reality out here. Living uh, a, next to a dog park, girls in yoga pants, women in yoga pants. <laughs> not that that means not that that makes a difference. No, no, no. Listen, it does. It does feel like a simulation when you're in Los Angeles, man. It, everything when you live there, it just doesn't feel real. Like you're like, am I in a movie? Is this a Truman Show? What's happening? Like it's very. It's it's like a too good to be true type of feeling when you're there. It's it looks it. I mean, there's so many palm trees that it looks very. Uh, it does look very simulated. Yeah, yeah, redwoods and squirrels. I took like a million notes for this, and I probably I probably will not get to any of them. I bet you they say he's just such an interesting guy to talk to. Yeah, I feel like uh, our guest today, you know, uh, for those who are listening, uh, our guest today, we actually have our first real politician on the program. I mean, no disrespect to Mr. Andrew Yang, but he never got elected. So we have our first elected politician, I should say. <laughs> Let's rephrase that. Uh, but yes, uh, so we have uh, Congressman Swalwell, so i got to get that right, Eric Swalwell, uh, from the Bay Area of California, and uh, it's you know it's going to be a real fun one. I mean, uh, this is we're trying to put on some guests here on the podcast that maybe uh, are a little bit outside the box or just people that like you know would be interesting and fun to talk to. And so far, like Daryl was saying, like a lot of our our feedback and our, our reviews and uh, all the stuff that we just kind of keep hearing about the podcast has been really great, really positive. So keep those coming, guys. Like give us a give us a five star review, leave us a little comment. Uh, you know, we appreciate that. Um, and add us on social media if you haven't already done that. Uh, Daryl is at Daryl C. Hammond on all the uh, socials. I'm at Chris Milhouse, two L's in Milhouse. And uh, Jim Search is at Jim Search on all the socials as well. But yeah, we've got like, you know, we've got such a great guest. I mean, I know Daryl's excited. I, I was, it was fun for me to just to read about this guy because it's, you know, he's a, he's a representative in, in Congress here. And like, uh, I, he's not somebody I, I would know, you know, because I don't live in the Bay. So I, I mean, I've heard his name, but I, I've never really looked into anybody that works in Congress unless they are my representative. So it's going to be interesting to talk to this, this guy about, uh, you know, just what he's been through in his time in, uh, in, in Congress and all the stuff that he's, he's got going on. I mean, you know, everything, everything going on with including his book. His book is very interesting. Daryl, you're reading his book, aren't you? I've read about 90% of it, but I mean, you know, I became aware that um, I couldn't take a test on it. That's a <laughs> fuck ton of shit. I mean, yeah. that, is a lot of, that is a lot of data. And I'm trying to remember the, you know, as much as I can of it. I think I just want to focus on, uh, you know, um, his early, whatever, you know, what, ask him what his inspirations are. I'm kind of interested in what his day is. Yeah, that is interesting to see what the day in the life of a congressman. Like, like what's on your mind all day? Mine's whether or not you know that they have fall at um, the new Vietnamese place. All right, <laughs> yeah, and gentlemen, they have, we've got Eric. Yeah, I mean in the Skelsons, huh? Uh, Eric's uh, on his way in. Before okay. before we add him on, real quick, let's plug his book. It's called Endgame: Inside the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, so that's a, a great book from uh, that's all the plural reading. So yeah, absolutely. Go go grab that book. Take a listen. Uh, I'm sure it's on audiobooks as well. Um, and also, real quick, uh, let's plug a couple of quick things. Uh, I have a show coming up. I would love for you guys to come. Anybody's listening in the New York City area, please come see me at 235th. And it's 235th 
Uh, it's a rooftop bar. I'm doing my show again there. Uh, Labor Day weekend, Saturday, September 4th, 8 p.m. Uh, Daryl, do you have any quick uh, shows you want to plug? I do, but I can't think of the dates right now. So when we do that next one, uh, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll we'll, plug, we'll plug them on the next one for sure. Jim, you want to plug something real quick? Uh, I got my uh, biweekly show in Brooklyn, Muddy Waters, uh, Fulton Grand. Tickets are five bucks on Eventbrite, seven bucks at the door. Come on through, and if you say that you listen to this podcast when you come to my show, I will buy you a drink because I am not mixed yeah, up. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, uh, Daryl, we're uh, we're about ready to add him on. Uh, let's uh, let's, let's get just... let's get our uh, our congressman. Let's have him join. Hey guys, hey Daryl. Chris. Hello. Hey, Eric, how are you? Good. I'm good. Hey, thanks for uh, putting us on. Absolutely. I have spent so, Eric, I have spent so much time with this book over the past five days. Oh, thank you, man. Really? I I really have. And I have all these notes, but they're all on my phone, so I don't know how to get to them. (laughs) I mean, I'm calling a lawyer friend of mine asking about your lawsuits. I'm calling uh, uh, another friend of mine asking about uh, trauma. Uh, recommended videos, um, the breakfast that you make for your kids. <laughs> like, you know, I, 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 I just can't imagine what your day is like. You start uh-huh. out so normally and then the yeah. show. We have a, a, yeah, exactly. Four, I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and one coming in November. And oh, my wife, my wife works, thanks. And my wife works full time. So it's just, it's fucking nuts around here. <laughs> oh yeah, I bet it is. And then you got to go over to Capitol Hill and deal with a couple of things too, huh? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Does you know the president? They say, I guess has something called a PDB. Yeah, the president's daily briefing. And do you have something similar? I have uh, an Intel briefing uh, because I'm on the Intel committee. Uh, it's a it's a weekly brief. It's similar because a lot of what the president sees, Congress on the Intel committee sees, uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. And do you work 14 hour days, five, uh, 10 hour days, five days I, a week? I don't, I don't know about you. I work late and I, I, I like to get up late and work late because, <laughs> but it's just, it's hard with the kids. Cause you know, you get up, they're up at five and you're up with them at five. And then, you know, maybe you can like sneak another hour in once you get them off of sleep. Mm. But I usually work till about two and I, I can't fall asleep before two. So, uh, and are you able when you're making the breakfast and doing all those homey things? Are you able to spot think about Donald Trump for a little while? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, my my kids are you know they as, as you probably can imagine. I mean, they're like the fountain of youth, right? They like yeah. Like it's just jujitsu all day long with them. Okay. Yeah, it's like if you don't have energy that day, you're gonna find some. Exactly. You'll find some eventually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it, it's funny they they uh, you know they call bullshit too, right? They they don't care what I do for work. Like they'll just you know talk to me straight, and uh, that's refreshing. So does my and wife, little, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> that's important. And little man. girls are little girls are so inquisitive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so my wife curious. My wife, uh, she's seven months pregnant, and she was we were all going swimming last week and she was putting on a bathing suit and my four-year-old boy looked at her and he said, mommy, is that going to fit? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, Nelson, don't <laughs> just send her into a tailspin. So yeah. When the wife comes in and says, these pants make me look fat, you know what to say. Exactly. exactly. Absolutely not. hun. And, and no, then we were, we were out of, uh, there was like an empty bag of chips. And my son says, he goes, did mommy eat all the chips? I'm like, oh, Jesus, man. Like, stop, like, shaming her about the pregnancy. <laughs> yeah. He probably thinks it's hilarious, which is great. You know, right, like, right. these little kids are just so, that's what you love about that innocence, you know, that, that young yep. period of their life. Because they just, they say anything and everything. And that's right. So entertaining. Yeah, and you're just so like, son, you took a swipe at mom earlier. Maybe you just better. Yeah, yeah exactly. Stand yeah. down for a little while. <laughs> well, Eric, we're really happy to have you on. I mean, we're excited. You're uh, our first elected politician that we've had on our oh, cool. podcast. And cool. It's it's a it's an honor to have you here. So we appreciate your time. Um, Very honored. Thank you. I, I was just curious, like, what inspired you to get into politics? What inspired you to, to to run as a representative for the people up in the Bay Area? There. Yeah. So. 
I was a prosecutor uh, for seven years, and, and that was really to follow my dad. Who he was a cop, and no one in my family had gone to college. And, and as long as I can remember, he always would tell me, "Look, you know, you're not going to break your back like I did as a cop. You know, you're going to work in a courtroom." Because he admired the work that prosecutors did in the courtroom, but he knew that he couldn't do that job because he didn't go to college or law school. So I, I followed that path. Um, you know, and he would come watch me in, in during my trials, you know, there'd be like no one in the courtroom except my dad, just like he would watch me at like a college soccer game or like a little league game. <laughs> That's He's great. Like sitting in the stands watching me. Um, but, great if he's cheering you on like, yeah, get him. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. That's exactly. right. Objection. Objection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But he, uh, he always stood up to both. He was a police chief of a small town. And, and I you know, talked about this in the book that he fought small town corruption. And there was a mayor who wanted him to make a couple cases go away and he refused to do it. And the mayor like very transparently uh, in an open city council meeting said, make these cases go away or I'm going to fire you. And my dad refused. And so he lost his job. We moved from Iowa out to California. And so that just kind of showed me that you have to be willing to do what's right, even if it means losing your job. And so in 2012, uh, we had a 40-year Democratic incumbent uh, who was 81 years old, uh, kind of moved into our, our district through redistricting, uh, like took over the area that I was living in. And I just thought there was just too much going on as far as, you know, student loan debt, gun violence, uh, the innovation economy and like cost of living that like was pricing out so many young people. And I thought like we need some, surely we can find someone who hasn't been there for 40 years. And I went to all the people I thought would naturally run for Congress. And they're like, no, I, I don't think I could beat a 40 year incumbent. It's just kind of baked in, right? Like once you really just need to win once is kind of like the way it is in politics. And you just keep running again and again. Yeah. And so I, I just kind of rem- remembered the lessons of my dad, which was, you know, do it yourself. And so I left the DA's office, uh, essentially for a year, uh, cashed out my pension, uh, the little pension that I had to live on. Uh, and we knocked on a hundred thousand doors and made the case for new energy, new ideas. And, had a, a campaign that ran in the great big middle. It was Democrats, independents, and Republicans. It was the first test of the top two system. If you remember, California got rid of the primary process and said any voter, any party can vote for any candidate. And so we wanted to test it to see if you really could, uh, you know, get a, a more, I would say, in the great big middle uh, candidate. And and it worked. And here we are. And I guess the lesson for me, and what's here's what's funny is, we found an ad that Congressman Stark had run in 1972 when he ran against an 80 year old. He was 40 years old and he ran against an 80 year old who had been on Congress for 30 some odd years. And he put like this picture of him. He's like well coiffed, big smile, looks great. And then his opponent, who was 80, he's got like this deer in the headlights look. And it's clearly just a, you know, a drive by on the guy's age. So we found that ad and we did our own uh, ad right next to that one. You know, uh-huh. it just kind of, it was almost parallel to what he had done. And so I, I told my wife uh, now that the lesson for me is don't be the, the 80 year old in the ad. <laughs> I, like, like, yeah, no, no one, it's time to, you know, hang it up uh, in 40 years. Uh, it's too long. Yeah. Didn't you say in the book that he had been showing up for votes? Or something. Just over four thousand votes. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. that's nuts. Why? What are you doing then? Like, why are you even? That was the case. Yeah, if if you're not coming home, yeah. you're not working in Washington. You know what the yeah. hell are you doing? And, and I, I, I want to say this: he was very effective early in his career, and I don't want to take that away from him. But he just was kind of on uh, cruise control, and there was you know yeah. too much shit to get done uh, to have yeah, someone. Absolutely, out. yeah. I mean, when you get to a certain age where you just start skipping votes and, and right. don't really care anymore, or like what's <laughs> what's the point? It's time for somebody new who does care and who does want to make changes, which is kudos to you. And I did read about your, your mock, uh, mock debate against where you have a, an actor you hired to play him, just giving his exact robotic answers kind of thing. Daryl wasn't available, but yes. Uh, <laughs> Boy, How great is that, that though? I, I give you, I got to give you a lot of props on that. And you know what we did was we, so we were true. He refused to debate us. And so, yeah, we hired an actor. And we were true to every statement he had made on every issue. So we just, you know, had a moderator ask 
you know, the questions on yeah. healthcare, energy, et cetera. Uh, but we read word for word, you know, what he had said, but we just wanted to have that debate, but also show the absurdity that uh, he wasn't willing to do it himself. Yeah, I mean, that, that just, so that debate never, did the debate happen? So that, with the, we had one debate and at that debate, uh, he had a complete meltdown uh, and accused me of taking hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes. Okay. Every newspaper, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Oakland Tribune, all called on him to retract and apologize. He ultimately did, um, but he never never showed up for a debate again. That's why we had to do the mock debates. Ah, okay. Um, but again, he just showed that, and that was my theory of the case as to why I needed to run was that this guy for 40 years, he had just not been challenged. And as soon as, soon as someone challenged him, I, I was wagering that he wouldn't be ready and that he would almost be offended that someone challenged him mm-hmm. and that he would react the way that he did in the debate. He, he didn't want to talk about policies. He just was so incensed that he even had to be there. Uh, and he, he started, the first sentence he said was, you know, I shouldn't have to debate this junior varsity pipsqueak, which was, wow. Yeah, he was annoyed. Um, <laughs> well, oh, I, I think it's safe to say that you did you oh, did the right man. thing by running against him. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's you, that is so good. That. Yeah. When did you know that you wanted to be a prosecutor? Was that a high school thing? You know, I, I wanted to play uh, soccer. So soccer was my ticket to college. I, I went to college on a soccer scholarship. And I never thought about anything really other than sports. And, and yeah. I thought I would play soccer and then play professionally, you know, maybe not. I knew I wasn't good enough to play like, you know, at, at the highest level, but I figured I could maybe play in Europe or South America. And I'm glad that plan failed because I got injured at the end of my sophomore year mm-hmm. and I interned on Capitol Hill uh, and a mentor who was a high school teacher said, why don't you go to the Hill interview with this member of Congress from back home and work for her. And I I did. And I didn't know if I was a Democrat or a Republican, but I did the internship. I just absolutely loved it. I saw that DC, you know, had 10,000 interns that descend upon the Capitol every summer. You feel like you're at the center of gravity for, you know, where all the important decisions are made. And so in the morning to make that unpaid internship work, I worked at this gym where all the members of Congress went to, and I just checked them in and handed them their gym towels and then at night, there was a Mexican restaurant uh, still there, the capital called Tortilla Coast. And when I ended my internship around five, I'd go to the restaurant and worked as a, a server. And I may have lied to get the job because it's so competitive to work as a server in D.C. I, I, I think I made up a name on the resume and had the had my it was like really a phone number to my brother. And my brother was like the general manager at the restaurant I had worked at. And it was like, oh, yeah, he's best server we've ever had. We're so sorry to lose him. It's such a benefit to you guys that you're going to get him. Um, so I had to like just claw my way, you know, into uh, getting a job to pay for that unpaid internship uh, using my, you know, uh, delinquent brother as a, uh, <laughs> as a reference. Um, but yeah, that was what I did. Uh, gym towels in the morning, uh, served, you know, margaritas and uh, tacos in the evening and then worked with members of Congress uh, during the day. And but when I did that, you walk by the uh, their offices and you, you see the nameplates and the flags. And to me, it was like watching a San Francisco Giants player on the, you know, on the field. Like you don't see yourself there. Right. You think, oh, boy, it'd be cool to be like, you know, on the baseball diamond. But, you know, you never think like you would actually be able to do that. I thought that was just people who, you know, they were related to them, like their family had done it or they had a lot of money. Uh, they went to an Ivy League school. Because so I would flip through the congressional Facebook uh, every day. It was an actual like Facebook. So you knew all the names, which helped me, by the way, when they would come into the Mexican restaurant, I could like call them by name. And shocking, you know, members of Congress are uh, prone to flattery. Uh, but you would, I, they all, you, I would look at their background and it was like, Ivy League College or, you know, dad was in Congress, you know, et cetera. And so it just didn't feel like something that I would be able to do. Yeah. And you felt slightly in awe of your surroundings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very humbling. <clears throat> I've never gotten over that Studio 8H feeling. Before. I bet. I bet. I've never. It's impossible. 
And I supposedly I've been in the studio, me and Keenan have been there more than anyone or whatever. I, I, I know what you mean. I, I don't really ever get over it. Yeah. And what, what do they call it? I think uh, imposter syndrome. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think that is real. Uh, we have a, we had an intern recently uh, who came from a family uh, where no one in his family had gone uh, to college. And some of our staff told me that he was having a hard time because he just, you know, he was lacking the confidence in himself uh, yeah. that he belonged there. And so, you know, I, I talked to him a couple of times and the staff did too, to say, no, no, you, you earned your way here. Um, mm-hmm. You belong here. But it, I think it, when that's not institutionalized for you, uh, you know, you're not a thoroughbred, so to speak, and it's been yeah. in your family. Uh, it can be hard, I, th- I think, to like accept that, and you feel like, you know, you're like a fraud, or that people are gonna, um, you know, find out that you don't belong there. That that was always uh, the sense that I had. I found that I had, you know, graduating college with a 2.1 average and having <laughs> all the other things that in my life, the trouble that I had been in the first part of my life standing in the Oval Office was a big deal to me. Yeah. I mean, it's a big deal. My father, you know, was a soldier in World War II and I, your grandfather, correct, was also World War II. That's right. Yeah. So all that stuff was really meaningful for me, you know, and it's sort of in a, like a deep emotional way, you know, really kind of gets to me. And that's why watching, I, I don't want to get into the insurrection or anything like that, but watching that, the American flags being used as a, as a, as a weapon was crazy for me, you know, crazy making. And it reminded that day. Um, it was, I was at the Capitol on September 11 as an intern and something I'll never forget was after I, I was sent home, I went back to my fraternity house at the university of Maryland and all of the brothers uh, were in the living room watching you know, the coverage. And I remember later in the day, um, and actually one of our brothers, his father died in the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. Um, but later in the day, we saw the members of Congress standing on the Capitol steps, Republicans, Democrats, House members, Senate members, and they just, you know, out of nowhere, um, unrehearsed, started singing God Bless America. And they were hand in hand, arm in arm. And, you know, that was kind of the first part of that day where you're like, okay, we're going to be okay. Uh, and unity is going to be our, you know, antidote to, you know, terrorism. And I remember as I was running out of the Capitol on January 6th, we're going through this evacuation route. And I'm bumping into Republicans, Democrats, bumping into Republicans who were at the president's rally. And remember, I was so angry at them, but we were all running for our lives at that point. And I, I thought to myself, maybe this is what it will take. And, you know, we're going to unite because we've all, you know, whether we were a Republican or a Democrat, voted for Biden, didn't vote for Biden. We're all running to the same place now. And maybe we will have our own September 11, you know, moment where we unite. And it just didn't happen. Uh, we not only, you know, we went, people, history, history will tell the story that we went back to the floor to certify the vote. And that, that has to be the story that's told to our children. But a darker side of that story is um, we were there till 4 a.m. because the debate persisted, right? We didn't just go back and say, okay, we're certifying it, we're done. We were there till 4 a.m. listening to the lies about the election uh, that the Republicans you know, wanted to continue to tell. And so we're still in it. We're, I think democracy you know, nearly died that day and I think it's on life support now. Well, you had the church in, in one of your, what do I say? You call them chapters when you're um, arguing your point in an impeachment trial or something, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah it was talk- a chapter. Yeah, that was. Yeah, and you're talking about uh, the quote from Winston Churchill, which was a spine tingling. Do you, do you recall it all? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I love all things Churchill. Uh, and, you know, I was framing what Donald, what the election meant for Donald Trump. And I I used the Churchill quote that it was not the beginning of the end, uh, but rather it was, you know, perhaps the end of the beginning. 
uh, in that Trump did not concede. Instead, he would go on for the next, you know, couple months uh, to just pour gasoline. You know, he would have assembled the tinder, throw the logs on and just feel the fire uh, of lies. And then obviously direct that inferno toward the Capitol uh, on the 6th. Yeah. And one of the most striking notes to that day for me was that those people, before they rushed up that hill, the last things they heard were Trump saying he's going to meet them there. Yeah. Right. So they're going to meet the, the big guy there as if he's going to have one of those, what do they call them? Tricor Paul Revere <laughs> hats. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Have I a they're coming. The Republicans are coming. <laughs> and and Daryl, I think like one, we know he, he's such a phony, right? Like he, he wasn't willing to go to Vietnam when everyone else around him was, he, you know, he lied multiple times to get out of it. Um, we knew he was never going to go, but in their mind, I think it showed two things. One, it showed solidarity, right? Like he's with us, but two, I think it was also a permission slip. It was like anything we do is okay. Cause he's with us. Right. Um, and so they went there fired up thinking that, you know, this is what he wants us to do. He wants us to do it so much that he's going to be with us and we're allowed to do it because it's almost like, you know, if the principal of the school said, um, hey, let's, you know, let's go to the other rival campus and, you know, just, uh, you know, torch the place. They're like, well, we would like to do that. We'd probably get in trouble. But if the principal's saying he's coming with us, like, well, we're not going to get in trouble. Right. So I think that's kind of how they viewed it. And when you read the FBI arrest reports of so many of these insurrectionists, it's absolutely how they viewed it. And Giuliani's comment, uh, trial by, co- let's have trial by combat. Pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty clear what he meant by that. Yeah. What the hell happened to Rudy Giuliani, man? I mean, seriously, like where, where, what, what happened? Like, it's no, just- going back again to September 11, right? I, I remember yeah. buying his book on leadership and watching when he ran for president, even as a Democrat thinking, wow, like I, I hope this guy emerges and, yeah, I mean, he's bought the downward spiral that has yeah. led to what he is now. And just, yep. uh, I mean, it's just, it just blows my mind because we all loved him, you know, in September 11th and his leadership and, you know, and just seeing what he is now. It's like, it's almost like, yeah. it's almost like a, somebody wrote a parody for SNL and it came to life. <laughs> That's you know? right. Like, yeah. And then, Daryl, were, were you there for the, uh, the can we be funny again? Uh, moment yes sir i was was kind of electrifying because we didn't have a cold open that week which is not uncommon sometimes the cold frequently the cold open doesn't come till saturday anyway that is you know the first four minutes of the show and you know i had done a show uh two shows in dc earlier um i think it was georgetown and american university and and in the morning i did my act i did politicians you know but in that moment, just a couple of days after 9-11, po- the politicians were untouchable. And so when I went into my regular routine, and it could be Ross Perot, it didn't matter what I was doing, they didn't, they won't, they didn't want to laugh. And, you know, audiences have to kind of agree. I've been told this. Have, audiences have to kind of agree with your premise and, and understand it, you know. So I'm up there. Let's make fun of these presidents. I mean, I, I was... Oh, no, it was awful. I, I mean, it was just 45 minutes of uh, awful. And then I went to the college later that night, and I didn't get any political material. So all of us are sitting there thinking, how in the hell do you do this show? Right? I remember being in the dressing room and seeing that line. <laughs> Why start now? Right, right. All right. That's, that's great. It's as cl- clever as anything I've ever seen. Was that too long-winded of a statement, Chris? Sorry. No, 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 no. It's good. It's, it's fun to hear. I've, I've actually never heard you talk about that time. Um, we talked briefly with, we had um, an SL cast member, Dean Edwards, who was at that time. And he's, that was his first week as a cast member when all that happened. And so he just described it like, you know, being your, you're brand new to the show and this is what happens. And then you don't know. Like, how are we going to do this? And yeah. hearing you talk about that was, it's interesting. I've never heard, you know. And, and so I think, again, we're 20 years, 
the parallels are, it's so interesting and I'll be fascinated to see how our, our kids learn about this, but the firefighters of September 11 were revered, not just the firefighters who ran into the building of Twin Towers or put out the fire in Shanksville or uh, at the Pentagon, just every firefighter in America, right? You like associated that person with the firefighters of September 11. And here again, 20 years later, the police officers of that day within the police community are not recognized. In fact, they're, they're getting beaten up over it. You, you talk to some of these guys about how they're getting, and I, I, because I come from a cop family, I, I think I've you know, been able to identify and, and get to know a lot of them. But just from their own fellow police officers across the country, they're not being recognized. And there were police officers who were a part of the mob that stormed the Capitol. And, and so I hate it for them uh, that they fought in hand-to-hand combat for four to five hours so that we could, you know, run for safety, come back and certify the election. And they're not getting that hero's welcome that they deserve uh, and not even within their own ranks. How do you explain that? We've just become – Donald Trump is not – you know, he is – he has been able to harness, I think, a lot of the divide out there and the grievances and the discord uh, and aim it. Um, but I think it reflects just how deeply divided this country is and, and how effective, you know, the, the Fox News misinformation uh, is. It, it really it really is amazing. But um, Officer Fanon, a friend of mine, tells me that you know, he reads on these police message boards, you know, one of the common attacks against him is that he's not even a real police officer, that he's a, quote, crisis actor. And that's just crushing stupid. Yeah. guys that suffered a traumatic brain injury, had a heart attack, had all of his weapons stripped off of him. And it's and, and again, unlike September 11, uh, where, you know, there's very little footage of what actually happened. There's, you know. Very little footage, but wide acceptance of what happened. This was the most filmed crime ever in the history of the world. And there's two truths, you know, being a, being told about. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I appreciate people like you who are standing up for these people, you know, these these officers and, and the, in the country and literally like keeping you know, making these people accounted for, for their, their terrible behavior. I mean, you know, to me, when I was watching some of these videos of like, you know, people getting kicked off flights because they were on the no fly list because they stormed the Capitol and they're crying like, why why are these bad things happen to me? And I I laughed. I was like, you're an idiot. Like you deserve all of this. Like you were so like, you know, the guy who wore his, his, his badge, like his work, like it's uh, his work badge. Cause he worked at like a, like a tech company or something like that or whatever it was. And like, you know, he's like crying because he got fired. It's like you stormed the Capitol wearing your work uniform with your name. And like these are these are just I mean, in my opinion, I mean, I I, this is just me. I'm not speak for anybody else, but they're fucking idiots. Like these are fucking idiots, in my opinion, who deserve to be held accounted for, like for their dumb behavior. And like, I appreciate, you know, when someone like you and using, you know, your, uh, you know, your political, you know, job that you have to like really keep you know, keep pushing for that, keep pushing to make sure these guys are accounted for. I mean, the, the, the story that baffles me is the one that I read the other day about how the woman that got shot there is now her family suing. Like she stormed the Capitol. She attacked the cops. She, and one of the cops shot her. And now her family's suing that the government for whatever 50 million or 90 million or whatever yeah. the hell it is. Like, well, Chris, thanks. Thanks for mentioning that one because uh, that one is particularly uh, maddening. So, I, because I witnessed it, uh, you know, I, I saw is basically as you leave the chamber to go into what's called the speaker's gallery, you can go left or you can go right. And if you go left, that's where the mob had assembled. Uh, and there's glass doors that they, you, that we could see the mob through and they were banging and pounding on the doors and smashing the glass. And Miss Babbitt was the tip of the spear. Essentially. She was the she was the first one. She was like pressed against the door, banging and smashing. And she broke the glass and started to climb through. And had she gotten through, 
everyone else behind her would have poured into the chamber. And the members who, sadly, because the evacuation route included stairs, the members that were, many of the members who were behind, like the last to leave, were the least mobile because they were trying to figure out a way to get them safely out. So they would have been the ones that would have been mowed over. It would have been the ones least able to defend themselves. And that officer did not wake up that morning wanting to you know, no. kill anyone. But he was, he was I, I believe it was the last, it was the sixth perimeter. So she had broken through five perimeters with that mob. And he was the sixth and last perimeter before the members of Congress. And, you know, we, he had seen, I'm sure what I had seen leading up to that, which was on my phone as I was in the chamber, we were being told that there were bombs outside and there were pipe bombs that were found, actual explosives found outside. We didn't know, we could hear them chanting. We knew they were chanting, you know, hang Mike Pence, hang Pelosi. So he had no choice. And, and to s- call him an executioner when he has been cleared, by the way, and he should be investigated. Anytime a law enforcement officer uses a weapon, there should be an investigation. He was investigated. He was cleared. But now you have Donald Trump yesterday saying, we know his name. I mean, that guy wow. and his family are in jeopardy. And, and, that's- yeah. and, with, and the dumb thing, too, is that, correct me if I'm wrong, it wasn't she the one that was making videos on her way there? Like in her car, like we're storming the Capitol, we're taking lives. I don't care. Like you know that kind of like, you know, she, those she videos. Not, yeah, she wasn't there for a tour, and I, I'm sorry she died. Yeah. But the um, dumbest thing is that they're they're all saying is that they were there for tours, and like that that's how they're the, that's the, their defense. You're a prosecutor. Come on, you would eat that up in court. You would rip that apart. And 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 in cop in cop vernacular, isn't that what's known as a righteous shooting or righteous uh, yeah, kill? Yeah, they say. A justified, uh, justified is, is the word. Um, yeah. But it, what you see on the, the, again, the tragic video that was released of the shooting, it actually it stopped them off, right? They had, they had one of... Oh, yeah. Each person had one of two reactions. They either went to her to attend to her, or they saw, okay, this is, this is the impenetrable perimeter. Like, yeah. they're yeah. not going to let us kill the congressman like they're act, like that is where they finally saw that they couldn't get through and again i i know that officer did not want to have to do that but uh he saved lives he saved my life and what's the mike tyson quote yeah everyone has a plan till they're punched in the face yeah a great quote what a great quote that's um, what happens like, but again, oh. I, and i i don't take i don't think any of us take um any satisfaction that miss babbitt lost your life but no. she was at the tip of the spear and there would have been innocent members of Congress and staff killed had that mob broken through. There's, there's no question. And I asked the first question I had for Mike Fanone when I had a beer with him before the Senate trial, I said, you know, I, I replay this moment in my head every day about leaving the chamber and the mob, you know, amassing to try and break through. And I said, what would have happened had that officer not shot her? And he said, I'll tell you what happened. I was, in the mix, in the mix with the mob, he said they would have hanged all of you. I mean, and like, yeah. What do you? Let me. I mean, first of all, like you know, the fact that you made it out safely, like I'm glad, and and I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful for that officer. You know, I'm, I, I, you know, like you said, nobody wanted this person to die. Nobody deserves to die. But like at the same time, it's like you know, the, it is what it is. It's it's something that happened. But what do you think? In, in your opinion, like how is this going to come to a close how are we going to like what what's the conclusion of this like are we going to get you know i mean because these people i've been reading about you know some of these people have been found guilty and they get like a slap on the wrist like they get fined two thousand dollars oh boy you know like i mean some of these people i think deserve jail time and i think they you know i think they should answer for these you know these these heinous you know this heinous thing they they attacked our government they attacked our country and even though they were claiming to be messengers of freedom or whatever the hell it <laughs> that's right but like um, how do you think this is all going to end up like where where do you think you know this is going to you know conclude it, it is the largest criminal investigation ever in the united states uh, the most amount of arrests for a single event um 
it's frustrating to see some of the sentences that are handed down, but the people who physically harm police officers will spend, you know, up to 10 years, uh, perhaps more, uh, especially, you know, the person that tased Officer Fanon and, and gave him a traumatic brain injury, that that could be, you know, uh, double digits. Good. I mean, good. No, and that's, that's, that's just absolutely right. Um, I, what I want to know, and I think what the select committee will also be looking at is, you know, what did Donald Trump know about who was going to be there that day? We know that he spent $50 million in ads between Election Day and January 6th on save the date ads, essentially telling people and inviting people to Washington. But what, what did he know about, you know, the Proud Boys and, you know, the Oath Keepers and the, you know, the other organizations that showed up? What did he know about their intent? Uh, what did he know as it was happening and what decisions did he make and not make that could have uh, saved lives? And, and that's in part why I also brought separately my own you know, lawsuit against the president is I don't think you can hold this guy accountable enough. And I, I think history, you know, speaking of how history will view this, I don't think anyone is going to say that we were too hard on Donald Trump. If anything, I think we will be judged harshly for not being hard enough on him you know, throughout his presidency that too often. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure as a prosecutor, the hardest part is just proving a lot of this stuff. Right. Too. Right. Getting, I mean, I've heard whispers of, uh, you know, the Secret Service having a meeting with people bef- the day before about what's going on. You know, like, who knows if that's conspiracy theory or not? I don't know. I'm well, not- we, should, we should we should know everything about that. Good, yeah. But the, prior to the the election itself, maybe it was the night before he he held a conference and declared himself the winner. Yes. Um, really, really. Sorry. I have a question because, you know, when I was uh, at Politicon a few years ago and I noticed that everyone wanted to, everyone had their Trump is dumb joke. And I, my feeling at the time was he may not know what the Magna Carta really is, but the guy's got a street hustler instinct in him. And, and I, you know, I asked, I'm going to ask this question to you and love to hear your thoughts. Is cunning a form of intelligence? Yes. Because maybe he doesn't have book learning, but how does he? Am I on the I I describe it, uh, Daryl, as he knows just enough to be dangerous, Uh right? Right. He he knows just enough to be dangerous. Um, And I've I've been in a room with him, and I I describe this in the book. He is a charmer, he's an entertainer. Uh And, um, I heard on the road when I ran for president in Iowa, uh, a reporter told me that he, the Trump was two hours late to a uh, town hall that he was supposed to have at this TV studio, this little TV studio in the center of Iowa. And he said the crowd was so upset. And finally, you know, the helicopter lands just outside. He gets out, walks on the stage, and he's got a very hostile crowd. And within minutes, you know, they're just eating out of his hand. And there is a, we would be, it would be naive to not acknowledge that there is a charm that he has over many people as an entertainer. And as I said, I saw it up close and personal when I, you know, tried to deliver a letter from a constituent uh, and and give it to him. uh, And he wanted me to feel like that was the most important thing that he was going to be looking at. And he complimented me uh, for how well he thought I had done on TV the night before. And I was scorching him. Uh, you know, I was on Tucker Carlson scorching Trump over Russia. But to him, I was validated because I'd been on TV, right? He, he didn't even care what I was saying. As far as he's concerned, it's all theater, right? Like, and, that, and I have come to believe, and I don't know if you guys watch, you know, WWF or WWE when you were a kid. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's perfect for that. <laughs> but no, when I was a kid, I, it was so crushing when my dad told me that it was not real. That, you know, son, if you look really closely, they're not really hitting each other. That's not really blood. And so I think a lot of these guys, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, my interactions with them were like one on one. They want to bro out and they want to be your buddy and they're really nice. But when you get in the ring, they're going to hit you over the head with the steel chair. They think it's all a show. 
and, and the people they represent are not constituents, they're fans. And so I shouldn't take it personally because backstage it's like, hey, we're all buddies, right? We're just giving the fans what they want. And that's what I see in Trump is that, yes, a lot of it is about power, but I, I think a lot of it is just entertainment and, and being relevant and, and being famous. And, and I thought it was particularly brilliant, um, if my liberal friends will pardon me from saying so, the, the as you call it in your book, I think the outrage of the day or something like that, when Trump would get there under those helicopter wings with his arms outstretched, messianic style. The chopper talk, yeah. And he's <laughs> screaming, he's screaming about the deep state. And the, well, does anyone really know what the deep state is? Oh, oh, is that? Yeah, okay. I, I, I'm glad it's not just me because I never actually understood deep state, but somehow it strikes a blow in his in his talks, and then he can throw in a little. He can lasso, you know, Nancy Pelosi or you know, uh, or Schiff with or you with that sort of socialist lariat of his, and uh, that that. But mainly, he's imparting the idea that you are screwed. I'll take care of it. Right. That's exactly right. And, and Daryl, to continue the pro wrestling analogy, what's so dangerous is that the people who are watching and looking at the ring, they think it's real. They're, so that's, that's the danger. That, again, like when he said, I'm, I'm going up there to the Capitol with you, again, that's just the theater. That's the pro wrestler. But the fans that went to that rally with him, they think it's real. And that's the consequence of Trumpism. And, and what, what is frustrating to me is we thought the November election would resolve Trumpism versus democracy, that, that one of them would get out of that ring uh, and you'd have a winner. And instead, we're kind of like in overtime. Like, it's not resolved. Like, the, everything that threatened our country during the administration still does when, you know, 39% of uh, I just saw yesterday, uh, 39% of Republicans think violence is an okay means uh, to use, you know, to reinstall Donald Trump as the, as the president. I mean, it's, it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. And I just saw in the news, Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security is issuing alerts uh, that lies about the election could lead to further violence in our country. Yeah. And it's weird. You know, you have, people like me, maybe people like Chris too, who really don't have a degree in economics and can't quite really discern whether the person talking to us about the economy is really telling the truth. We're depending on them to tell us the truth, you know, and, 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 you know, the same with, with foreign policy. I don't know how the Kremlin works that well. So I, I'm relying on a leader to come out and go, here's what's going on. And, and you believe it. And then he, he really sells his ideas. That's right. I mean, he really my, sells it. my question to you would be, is that like, do you think that there's any, do you think there's any hope to reunite the country? Like he seems to have divided it so much, you know, uh, you know, he say what you will about him. I mean, obviously, you, you know, he, we're, he is an entertainer. He is that guy. He knows how to prey on your insecurities. He knows how to, you know, make you believe, you know, that, that you believe what he believes and things like that. I mean, do you think that we could ultimately get back united? Do you think that there's, there's hope to, you know, maybe have somebody, maybe that's not a Democrat, not a Republican, someone in the middle, you know, something like that. I mean, what do you, so my, do you I, I do, yes, but it's, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, no, of course not. With, with January 6th, that it, it's not unlike September 11, it's not going to happen in a single moment uh, either. Right. Even a, a single no, it'll take a lot of time. Yeah, question point. It's gonna it's gonna be the hard work day to day of like what Joe Biden's doing. I, I believe you know he was elected because he promised to unite the country, and and what he did earlier this week, getting sixty nine Republican and Democratic votes on a bipartisan infrastructure bill, like that's that's what people want, and it's not sexy, right? It's it's not um, you know something that is gonna you know you're gonna see on the the front page of every paper, but it is going to make a big deal in the lives of a lot of Americans. And we haven't had 
you know, a, bipart- a bipartisan bill of that magnitude passed in many, many years, many, many presidencies. And I'm convinced that had Donald Trump as the builder developer president, if the first thing he had tried to do was go for a bipartisan infrastructure package, because he, if you remember, he campaigned and he wasn't wrong when he said, look, our airports are falling apart. Our infrastructure is crumbling. Like that touched everyday folks. And as he was saying that in 2016, I thought, man, this is, you know, this is bread and butter stuff, kitchen table issues that people, you know, they see and they know and they, they feel when they go to an airport, it's real. And he's talking about it. Had he gone for that, he would have gotten Republican and Democratic votes. And I believe he would be president today. Instead, he couldn't help himself. He, you know, again, I think very much for the entertainment value, he needed a villain in Obama. And so the first thing he went for was to overturn, you know, Obamacare and never really climbed out of that. But he he had an opportunity. And I think, again, going back to the fans, what they liked about him was that they thought he was different. They thought that he was not an everyday politician, that he was going to go there and shake things up. And boy, I think it was a, a big miss. And here Joe Biden comes along and is able to get a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending with Mitch McConnell, of all people, you know, voting yeah. uh, for it. And that's, to use Biden's words, it's a big yeah. fucking deal. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I always, oh, sorry. No, I'm sorry. Please. <laughs> I, w- I was just going to say real quick, I always said that uh, Donald Trump could have rewon the ele- he could have won the election and beaten Joe Biden for one thing and one thing only if uh, when the when COVID hit and coronavirus came out, if he had just told people to mask up for America. Yeah. Wear that mask and let's beat this as Americans. Let's do this together. And instead, he went the opposite way and acted like an idiot, let hundreds of thousands of people die and millions now. But like. If he had just said something like that, like, let's unite, let's stay home, let's, you know, th- let's let's do this, let's beat this, let's get through it. He would have landslided, I think, Joe Biden, unfortunately. But, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad, personally, I don't speak for anybody else, but I'm glad that he's out. And I'm glad that Joe Biden is in. But, like... And Chris, you're right. I, again, what a miss, right? I mean, our country... So simple. You, you, you don't need to be, you know, a statistician to look at Every time a president has faced a crisis, the country generally rallies around the leader. And yeah, if he had just said, made it like a macho thing, like, yeah, we're going to beat this virus. And, you know, I'm going to send every American a mask that says, yeah, mask up America. And like, we're going to be in it together. Yeah. He would have won flag masks. Let's all do it. You know? Yeah. It would have been a landslide. Um, But he just failed the test because at the end of the day, we elect presidents not for how they lead in the good times. We elect them for what they're going to do during the challenging times. And, and he failed. Will there be a day in your life that you don't at least for a moment, think back to the day, January 6th. Yeah. I, I tell my wife that, that uh, there hasn't been a day yet. I, I think about it every day. I think I've gotten past for many weeks. There was just a lot of guilt that I had about leaving the floor um, I hated that we left the floor. It, it felt like we were retreating. Um, only once I, you know, did the Senate trial and I looked at, you know, thousands of hours of, you know, video evidence and, and different angles of the Capitol that I realized like how overwhelmed and overrun the Capitol was. And that had I stayed, I would have only endangered the police who would have stayed with me. But that was a hard, that was really hard. Um, and I, I would ask other colleagues of mine, like if they regretted, leaving as well. And there was, there's a collective guilt, um, that we left. Uh, but now, um, yeah, I I still think about it every day. I I wonder what it looked like. I I met, I was abroad, uh, recently on an intelligence committee trip. And one of our foreign service officers told me that he just happened to be in DC that day. And he went down to the Capitol to watch it. But like, like I'm like, his reaction was I've, I've served, in some of the harshest posts in the world, I've seen democracies collapse. Like I'm going to go, like I want to go see what's happening at my capital. And which is also gives me goosebumps to like, think about that. This guy never thought it would happen in his country. He's seen it at other capitals. Yeah. He's working for the U S and I was just so curious to hear from him. Like, what did it look like to watch it? Like, what did it, cause I, in my mind, I want to know, like, what did it sound like? What were the sounds uh, that you were hearing? Um, because it just, from the inside, 
what was most terrorizing was we couldn't see anything. We, it was just the unknown. The, that was what yeah. the bear came from. We just there's, a, there's, there's a question that's been, been nagging at me a little bit since you started talking today, and that is how in the world can any human being be prepared for the exact moment when a, you suddenly realize, oh, my children might lose their dad? How do yeah. you prep for that? I might die. And I didn't want to like alarm my wife, but as we were given more and more warnings and we were being told to take our gas masks out again, I, I kept thinking like, there's no way, like they're not coming into the Capitol. There's, there's no way they would make it in. I mean, that's, almost, that's unthinkable. Like, what, yeah. I mean, you, you, you're in the most secure city, you know, and, and one of the biggest, you know, right. <laughs> political places, you're like, there's no way this is going to happen. We're, you know, we're obviously protected. Right. And, and I saw I saw Pelosi taken away and I thought, well, that's just precautionary. But it was actually when the House chaplain and it was, it was like her first day on the job. Mm. And I had started the session. I gaveled us in at noon. Speaker Pelosi asked me to gavel us in and, and I asked the chaplain when I did that to lead the house in prayer. And then we did the pledge of allegiance and then we appointed the, the tellers and then Pelosi and Pence took over the gavel. But that chaplain, it was, I think her first day on the job. She is a Lieutenant general, believe in the Navy. So she's been in theater combat before. And, and as we're sitting still in our chairs and we've got our gas masks out, she just walks up to the podium and recites a prayer. And that's where, that's where it hit me. Okay. Um, we don't know if we're going to get out of here. Like it, it, everything I had assumed about our security thrown out the window. And, that, and that's when I texted my wife and I, I didn't want to send that text. I didn't want to alarm her, but I also thought like, you don't get that, you don't get that moment back. Like if you're going to, um, yeah, you know, the worst is going to happen. So. And, and like, can I ask real quick, is that, yeah have we installed things to make sure this doesn't happen again? Is, is, is this still a fear to be in that, in the Capitol and that it could reoccur? Like, is there precautions now, you know, are, are we better secured? You know, that's, that's my, my wonder after seeing that. Yeah. We, we just passed in both the house and the Senate security funding um, that would address in part that, but my fear is that yes, we can better, fortify the Capitol and we will. And you saw sadly to inaugurate Joe Biden, it took, you know, 10,000 plus national guardsmen and and almost zero witnesses other than the Congress, you know, to the event. But my, the real fear is that um, all of the circumstances on the outside still exist, right? Donald Trump is claiming that he's going to be reinstated this month. You've got a large part of the Republican base who believes that he should be president. And I cited the poll earlier that, you know, 40% of them uh, think that violence is okay. And so you have the same ingredients for this to happen again. And, and I, I still believe that the antidote, just as it was on September 11, is unity. And as long as colleagues of mine in the Republican Party are telling the lie that the election was stolen, you're just feeding into that uh, that fire I never knew I never even thought that you know I was with uh, a friend of mine's an Uber driver and I was with her yesterday and she said if she if she were going to depict January 6th and she would have a panoramic view of thousands rushing up the steps and then write 30,000 lies made this happen you know, when you see the Washington Post say things like he lied 30,000 times, how does he know how to do that? Yeah. How does he know he can get away with that? You know what I'm saying? Um, and then if you have, like, disparate sources of information, it's suddenly like nobody can agree on a set of facts. And we're tired. You know, you just get tired to trying to, to, trying to dissect all this, right? You know, Chris? It's tiring. Yeah. It's exhausting. I, w- I went. To, I had lunch with a family member a couple weeks ago, and I, I come from a Republican family, and I actually think that makes me a better. It makes me better at my job. And at lunch, it was with my mom, 
uh, and she works for an energy company uh, that has a big presence in Texas. And I was asking her what she thought of the blackouts that they had in the winter and the recent blackouts that they've, they've had there and how that was affecting her job. And my mom looks at me and she goes, well, sweetie, you know, it's that AOC got the Green New Deal into Texas and now they have all this wind and the wind just doesn't, you know, blow in the winter. And that's what happened. And I'm like, oh, man. And then she wasn't saying it like to like own the libs. She was just saying it because she'd seen it on Fox uh, and Facebook. And yeah. she was repeating it to me as like, it was like, like, didn't you know this? Like the sun sets in the West and AOC got the Green New Deal in Texas. And those are two things that are equally true. And it took me 15 minutes to say, no, no, mom, like there's no green new deal that's passed. It's certainly not passed in Texas. Here's what happened as far as I know, but like that took 15 minutes to like get her back to the line of scrimmage and you can't do that with every American. And, and so, yeah, it, it, it it's destructive. Uh, if- and it's also confusing. I, I'll, this is the last thing I wanted to tell you. Um, I have uh, three friends of mine, uh, three women who have been successful businesswomen, good moms and pay taxes, the kind of people you would you know, let, let babysit your kids. Like, and they're Trumpers. They're, they're, they're only looking at that one source. And the, it, it, you know some, I'm, I won't mention their names. But I love them, these people, and they're Trumpers. Yeah. You know? It's a sad I just wish that we, you know, I, I wish the news was the news. When we were growing up, the news was always like, okay, well, these are facts yeah. and we're reporting them and here's what's going on. But now you have these other news stations that are contradicting each other and you don't know the problem with America. It's so divided in that, you know, some people are easily led into certain, you know, whether you're right or left or whatever, they just, they go, they just go with it. And then you're like, wait, you know, unfortunately, like your poor mom right now, like, she was misinformed, and that's the thing that sucks about the news is that a lot of times you watch Fox News and completely misinforms the American public. And, mm. you know, I just wish that we could get back to the days where, like, the news was the news. And, like, you know, yes, it was boring, but at least it was facts, and at least it was, like, this is what's happening. This is, the, this is exactly it. Like, we're not falsely reporting things that we want to be true, you know, or whatever. I don't know. I'm just, uh, you know, I long for those days is what I'm trying to say there. That's right. Same here. I, I'm so grateful that you took your t- took the time to spend with us today. Oh, I, and thank you for reading the book, and, and thank you for making us laugh during these trying times. You know, we we joke uh, still today that it, it's the gallows humor that's gotten us through uh, you know these tough times. And, and I'll, I'll just leave you with this: <laughs> one of the, the funniest things that happened uh, post insurrection was as we were getting ready for the Senate trial an IT team came in and set up a room right next to the Senate floor for us to work out of the nine impeachment managers. And the team is showing us the copy machines, the laptops, the printer, the telephones that are set up and the TV. And, you know, as one of the millennials in the group, I asked, of course, like, what's the Wi-Fi password? And this IT tech kid who is a contractor, he's not a partisan, doesn't work for the Democrats or the Republicans. He tells me that the, Wi-Fi network is under the name managers, you know, for the impeachment managers. And I said to the guy, I said, you know, I'm pretty impressed that you guys were able to stand this up in such short order. We just impeached him and you've got this fully functioning room. And without missing a beat and with, with no irony, the kid says, well, sir, we were the team that did the first impeachment. And to be honest, we just left everything up because we figured you all would be back. (laughs) (laughs) Bravo. That's great. Uh, well, one, I have one last question before we let you go. Um, uh, what, what are your aspirations? Do you see yourself becoming president someday? I mean, or are you going to go governor, senator, or you, you know, are you content staying where you are? Yeah, I, I think I have the antibodies uh, for running for president. Uh, that's the good news, not doing that again. And the advice, we just wrapped up our summer internship program. And the advice I give to our interns is... Um, because they all ask, like, how do I get to Congress? You know, I want to run for Congress. How do I get there? And I tell them, don't pick an office, pick issues, and the issues will find the office. Uh, but if you just say, I want to be governor, 
and to be governor, I have to be, you know, attorney general and to be attorney general, I have to be a state senator. And you like create this artificial ladder in your mind. If you don't hit one of the rungs, you may be so demoralized that you just don't want to be in public service at all. And so um, that was advice that was given to me when I was just coming out of law school to focus on the issues and you'll find your way. I ran for president because I thought we had just elected uh, the youngest house ever uh, in 2018. We had the best shot at taking on like gun violence and climate and that we needed generational change. And that was the case I made. Um, but I, I think that was because of the, the issues I cared about and the times we were in. But I don't think that means that that's the only office I should run for. So I, I'll just follow my own advice, I guess. Okay. Wonderful. That's, that's a great answer. I, I, I appreciate that. And, uh, well, uh, before we go, I'm going to plug your book again one more time. I uh, plugged it before you joined us, but uh, Endgame Inside the Impeachment of Donald, Donald J. Trump. Uh, it's available, you know, anywhere you get books. I'm showing you have uh, you have been de- designated the, the Snapchat king of Congress. <laughs> so uh, how can people follow you on social media? Yeah, it's at Eric Swallow. At, at Eric Swallow. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Insta- Twitter. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm going to follow you just for that Snapchat King of Congress uh, <laughs> title that you got. So uh, I appreciate you, you joining us. Thank you so much for your time. I know of it's course. very valuable. So we, we yeah. appreciate it. Thanks, Daryl. Thanks, Chris. God bless, Eric. Bye, Eric. Thank you. Yes. Thanks. Oh, guys, that was uh, that was the congressman. And what a what a great interview. Don't you think, Daryl? Like, I mean, just an interesting, well-rounded guy. I feel like he's very personal. <clears throat> I thought I was pretty clunky, but I did have a couple of good questions. But he's just a cool cat. Yeah, he seems fun. like the kind of guy I'd love to have like a beer with and just shoot. Fun as hell to talk to. Yeah, have you have, uh, have you been speaking to him a little bit before this? Uh, um, no, okay. I mean th- there was minor texting in the beginning, but uh, I don't know. My gut instinct is telling me that was a solid interview. Oh, yeah. I think it was great. And I could, think we could have talked for hours on the January 6th stuff. I think there's yeah. just so much, you know, I, it's funny because I was talking to you before this. And I was like, I think, Daryl, you're going to have to carry this one. But like the more he talked about stuff, the more I got like kind of, you know, zoomed in where I was like, all right, like I have I have some I have some legit questions about this stuff that I didn't think I was going to be able to ask. You know, I never thought I would get the opportunity to ask somebody who was there, you know, somebody. I, who yeah. There. I mean, I got to. There was a couple of times when I couldn't find my point, and I felt like I spoke longer than I wanted to, but it wasn't too noticeable, was it? No, no, it was great. I mean, it was great. And I think that, uh, you know, Eric uh, Swalwell is a a very uh, well-spoken person, and uh, I think the people uh, in his district are are very well-represented say the least after talking to him and you know i hope he does run for president again someday and i hope that he you know gets into a higher office and helps make more changes because he seems that you know he seems to have a good head on his shoulders but uh you know our thanks to him for joining us um one more quick reminder guys follow us on social media do it right now at daryl c hammond at chris millhouse and our producers at jim search and obviously follow the congressman at eric do we want to plug next week we can plug next week. We'll, we'll, we'll let the uh, we'll, we'll let the listeners uh, have a little taste. So next week we are going to be joined by the legend, the one and only Jane Fonda will yeah. be joining us. What an amazing guest that we are very excited about. Daryl is very good friends with Jane, and uh, I'm happy that I get to speak with her. I've never met her. I've never had the opportunity to meet her. So I'm very appreciative. And I know that, uh, you know, our listeners are going to be in for a really good one with that. And I hope you guys enjoy this podcast, uh, this episode of the podcast. Make sure you share uh, all our posts on social media. Tell your friends. Give us a good review if you don't mind. And uh, make sure you tune in for, uh, for Jane Fonda next week, guys. Thanks so much. Have a good week. Take care, Chris.